Welcome to the More Than a Worship Leader podcast. I'm your host, Gary Durbin. I've been a worship leader for over 20 years, and I've learned a lot from so many on this journey. On this podcast, we'll have conversations and explore the dynamics of leading worship in the local church. Creativity and worship ministry go hand in hand. The worship leader's role usually has some part in the creative aspects of the church that go way beyond the Sunday morning set list. So it's important that we see ourselves as more than worship leaders. We're artists. We're creatives. On this episode, I talked to Rich Kirkpatrick about the magic of creativity. He's an author, musician, and creativity expert. Along with being in worship ministry for many years, he writes, consults, and speaks about the intersection of creativity, faith, and leadership. He's also a great friend of mine, and I've always appreciated his perspective and insight on life and ministry over the years. So here's my conversation with Rich Kirkpatrick. Hey, Rich, welcome to the More Than a Worship Leader podcast. It's great to see you and hear you today. My pleasure to be here, Gary. So we met a long time ago at uh, the worship conference days. I think the first time I met you, you were teaching a workshop with Carlos Whitaker, Los Witt. At, oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah. At the Saddle, at Saddleback Church, Purpose Driven Worship Conference, if I remember correctly. My goodness, that was a long time ago. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we were both young. Both young and... <laughs> Doing our thing. I was, I was young and you were younger. That's cool. <laughs> and we struck up a friendship. Uh, you were really gracious. I remember back then, very um, personable. And I remember sending you a message and we just struck up a friendship. And you even helped me finish my book, More Than a Worship Leader. Which is a very good book, which I'm happy to tell all my friends about because we are hopefully more than just worship leaders. <laughs> Well, I'm excited to talk about uh, your books as well. You, you've been a worship leader for a long time. So can you just tell us about how you got your start as a worship leader? Well, I thought I was going to be a professional musician who didn't have to stand in front of people. I went to a music trade school right out of high school. And then I ended up at my home church, big church, new worship pastor came and, you know, had got me involved in singing and I didn't know he was really meant to me to lead worship. Like, Hey, sing this part of the song and all this. You know, so I'd walk up and sing and, and, um, and eventually, um, I was involved. Uh, one big event that got me hired on staff at the church was the choir piece was written out poorly. And this was in days where you couldn't really find contemporary quote, contemporary worship music that was, uh, published. So, you know, he had to make it up. So I took it home and, I knew music copying pretty well, music, music copyist, redid the arrangement because it was terrible, brought it back to the music director. And then the next week, the worship pastor, music director come corner me afterwards and say, hey, young man, how much do you make delivering pizzas? I said, wow, whatever it was, three bucks an hour, whatever it was, some ridiculous amount uh, plus tips. He said, well, well, we'll match that if you work for the church and do more of this stuff. Like, like what, really? So. I started working for the church. I was a music copyist, did all the prepare for the orchestra, which is like 30 piece orchestra, 200 voice choir. Um, we had 
a 40 to 60 voice young adult choir, which it was all contemporary music. It was so fun. And that was my, you know, where I, my girlfriend who became my wife. Um, and what happened there was how did I get a worship leading Gary? Um, those same people, one of them, music director, she came to me and she said, Rich, I've been praying and I think you should consider being a worship leader at my friend's church plant. And I looked at her with big shocked eyes saying, what is a worship leader? And second, what is a church plant? And that set me off. Uh, <laughs> that set me off. We moved to Southern California and the sidebar there. I got to meet Rick Warren and all these people because it was so small back way back in the day. Mm-hmm. Lived on the beach with my wife, newlyweds. In-laws were like, how are you going to make money? Because they weren't, weren't going to pay me enough to even pay our, our apartment rent. And that set me off on, on 25 years of full-time ministry. And I've still been doing it beyond those years. Um, I'm still leading worship today at my local church. Uh, my daughter and I are, are, quote, contracted worship leaders with a group of others uh, at our local church, which is really fun. And so it's been, a, it's been a long ride with lots of ups and downs in between that, but it's been great. So that's how I got into it. Yeah, it reminds me of that joke. You know how you get a musician to leave your front porch, right? No. You pay him for the pizza. <laughs> and I exactly what I was doing. I was a pizza guy. And I made pretty good. I didn't, the church, by the way, did not pay me as much as I made delivering pizzas. I just want to make that clear. Now, if I remember correctly, did, did you say you started leading worship in the early 90s? Or was I would say, that? yeah. Well, 1989, I got married. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be 35 years next year, which is a miracle for my wife's patients. Um, it's a wonderful thing too. Um, so back then that's when I, um, because it was like, go to that church plant rich and lead worship. I said, well, this is my girlfriend. What happens? Oh, I won't be with her anymore. So what do you do? Well, I guess I got to get married. And so, yeah. So that was 1989 started my professional worship leading, even though I was doing it as a volunteer before that. This is a interesting question that just hit me, but you got the nineties, you got the two thousands, the two thousand tens, I guess is what you call them. What, what would be like your favorite decade as a worship leader to lead, to lead worship in? Well, it's not the nineties, <laughs> <laughs> except for the fact that I was at a group, uh, a church back in the East Bay where I just moved here again. I was at a church and we would do Pablo Lash, but imagine Pablo Lash with, with the, um, jive of tower of power with three-part horns and a funk kind of feel for it's east bay i mean east bay greece um and that was i love the fact because the pabalash songs are great you can make them your own and we did and um i wish you could have heard that i wish i could have, like recapture that because there's a moment in time that you just can never go back to and it was really fun um i never knew any better so we didn't know better we just this is our volunteers this is who we have to play music and and this is what, how they played. I said, okay, we're going to go with it. And it was a lot of fun. I think those days were fun because there wasn't really, you have to be like this sound. You have right. to be this, whatever. Even though Saddleback was a big church at that point in time, and I had um, roots with them. And a fellow San Jose, Rick Machel is also from San Jose. His hometown was mine, and we miss him dearly, of course, as one of the great uh, sages of, of yeah. us worship leaders over the years. But, you know, but yeah, we just made it up. So that decade was great. I also have to say that the early, like, I was in the 80s. So 
there was something really different that happened in the 80s where it exploded, like the late 80s. Like 88 was when I was like writing out orchestra parts for that church. Mm-hmm. It was so new that everybody had to just like, they put their cassette tape recorder, they go to that church and then they'd mail it to you and then you transcribe it. That's what I did. I transcribe it for our worship team and we do it the next week, like totally bootlegged uh, <laughs> of that church's new song that everyone wanted to do. And somehow those exploded kind of organically. Like someone would say, Hey, I was just at a friend's church and I couldn't believe the song. And that's how you did music back then. You didn't like have it sent to you from Elevation Worship or Red Rocks Worship with this slick thing and some cool guy talking behind his SMB 70 microphone, you know, singing cool. You know, it was just like, hey, this is amazing. My life was changed by this song. And uh, this is back to the old days, Gary. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so they did. So there was something about that that was so cool. And the vineyard music was new. Yeah. Integrity was new. Uh, which was all the Hillsong stuff was all brand new. And it was just stuff. And it was so different than what came before it. It was mm-hmm. a really a change. Church before that was, uh, you had to be Pentecostal to have experiential worship before that. This took it to every church. Right. That was a big change. And so I liked that little change because I was a young person, you know, pr- really, really young. Yeah. But then I also liked the Pabalosh with the jivey funk beat years. <laughs> So three decades leading worship, you're just shy of perfect. So I'm sure you've had some mess ups on stage. What's like the most embarrassing or crazy moment you, you were a part of on stage. I've had a couple of them, but one of them I have to capture on YouTube. It was a viral video called drum shield attacks worship leader. Yes. And what happened was we were singing. um, Oh gosh. Mighty to save that might yeah. trigger somebody in the audience. Yeah. Really old song. Right. But back then it wasn't that old. Right. And I had my kind of emo hair of the 2000 and yeah. late 2009, eight, whatever year it was. And so I'm playing the piano on the drum shield, just kind of bonks on me and the piano and, and the, and we keep going. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so it was really interesting. And the embarrassing part happened afterwards when everyone was laughing at me. I wasn't aware of how embarrassed I should be until afterwards. Right. And here, Rich, we're going to, we just made a copy of the tape for you. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so like, so not only there's embarrassing moments, you feel embarrassed, but no one sees them, but then there's yeah. ones where everybody else saw it first. Yeah. And that's what happened with that one. Well, along with being a great worship leader, you're also a great author. I've um, read both of your books, Six Hats of a Worship Leader. I remember being inspired by that. Uh, when you put that out. And then recently you've put out an, a fantastic book called Mind Blown. Absolutely love this book. Um, tell, tell us about writing that book, where, how, where, where it came from and, and why you wrote it. It really came because I wrote this book for worship leaders because that's what I did. And I hung out with people like you, Gary, and, and I wanted to write something that I know is close to your heart. Like, how do we get time to actually be with our people and shepherd them. And, you know, we have to kind of take care of those hats. And so after I do these workshops, people will come up, worship leaders and creative directors and others, pastors and say, well, how, the creative process is something we seem stuck in. You know, this guy's too controlling doing this. And I don't seem to ever be able to get enough space to do this, or I'm overwhelmed with this kind of creative conflict going on and all these different things about creativity. And what can you tell me? 
And I was like, I don't know. I got to go check that out. So I did some of my own internal work and the research about it. And I did a workshop on uh, the creative process um, for that particular group of folks. And it really was something that was became the most favorite workshop I ever did and talks I ever did. So I did further research over the years. This is like six years. Uh, I, when I moved to Southern California, I drove Lyft uh, and um, taking people to the airport whether it was a cook, a CEO, a film director, or whoever, they just all said this book really, you know, the idea of the book, which is this creative process. And really what it is, mind blown, uh, is about creativity uh, and the creative process. But creativity, as I come to understand, is really what people do when they thrive. So when you have a safe environment, when your basic needs are taken care of, we become creative. Well, one, because we're designed from a, by a creator to be creative. So that's how we're made in God's image, uh, which I believe that to be very true. And scientists have proven that. So uh, the research I've seen, besides the theological background I have, really, <laughs> people who don't necessarily believe in a creator, which I believe a lot of scientists do, because I know a couple of them, and they were saying, hey, your brain as a human being is wired to be creative. There's other animals that might even have bigger brains and intelligences and blah, blah, blah. But the human brain and our bodies and how just everything's put together, we have this creativity that's very interesting and unique. So in creativity, there's a process to it. And so that the short of that, just to, just to button it up a little bit, is how you discover ideas, how you develop ideas, and how you deliver ideas. And so that came to me and I thought, I wanted to test my ideas, Gary. So I said, I don't trust myself because I, I want this to be tested. So even though the people on my Lyft rides seemed to like it and my barber liked it and my friends at worship leader friends seemed to like it, I wanted to just research and test it and, and kick it around and, and put it through a lot of filters. And, and I was surprised at, I'm not original. <laughs> I basically just was tapping into some wisdom that's 100 years old as well as brand new neuroscience. And so that's the culmination of, of the research anyway, to write this book about creativity and the creative process. One of my favorite stories in the book that you wrote about was it was near the beginning of the book. And you tell this story about being in a church staff meeting and the leader gives an analogy about plants and like plants only purpose is to harvest and feed us. And you being rich Kirkpatrick, spoke up and challenged this leader and you, it was brilliant. What you said, you said, well, what about flowers? You know, <laughs> what about flowers? And I'm sure he just absolutely loved it when you said that. I, I think it, what we see in the creative process is that creativity has something that's beautiful and useful. We always focus, focus on useful. What is it going to do for us? How many souls are going to be saved if we, had the greatest music in the world and most innovative marketing. So we look at all our creativity, simply this utility. We don't understand this other part, this beauty, which is I call the magic. By the way, magic is a metaphor. I don't believe in weird magic, you know, and even C.S. Lewis uses magic. So don't you know, say I'm not among other people who use the word. But anyway, so the beauty, beauty is, is important. And that kind of is a metaphor for things that we just can't put our finger on. And so when we have a relationship as creatives in the church environment, as worship leaders, what we're trying to do, I think, for people is not just I'm coming to worship to get something. It's not a, it's not a pagan thing where 
I'm paying my price by my emotions and affections being given to God. I am here magically being in the presence of God and I'm practicing something that, forgive the word, magical could happen here because it's God. And, and, and I'm open to that, like seeing the sunset. Sometimes you see the sunset and it just hits you. But it's always there, even if it's behind a cloud. And I think our creativity is like that. We have to be willing to see it, that it has that quality to it, that it gives us meaning. It's not just something that it does ROI, as the business people say. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite quotes so far in the book is, you said, when we create to captivate people, we create something beautiful. What do you mean by captivating people with creativity? What does that look like? And maybe even for a worship leader. I think what we're trying to do is we're trying to help people's affections and human heart be moved about it. And because otherwise what happens is we're just looking for a transaction. We're not looking for that. So captivating somebody, you prepare a meal, which is a good metaphor for worship, right? So your chef preparing a meal, you set a table and all the elements of how it's served, you want to captivate somebody. You want them to sit at that table and enjoy that food for everything you put into it. And there might be layers and things people aren't going to get to. So if you sit at that table and you just put in a fast food bag and you say, I'm feeding you, you know, it's like the plants just exist for just eating. But if you're saying this more than that, there's something dignified about you sitting in one space at a point in time and seeing the miracle of it. Because what I mean about that too is miracles happen in time and space. So the birth of Jesus happened on a date in a certain spot on the planet. The resurrection, same thing. And that's, it's, it's just like there's containers for it. So captivating means I need, I'm creating a space so that a miracle can happen. I don't know if it's going to happen, but I'm the person who's creating the space. Like the chef prepares the food for the table. The experience that people have is still up to them. I'm just opening up that possibility for folks. So as a creator, a sub-creator, as Tolkien calls us, I think very wisely, that's what we do. But we're not like God who actually creates literally, boom, from nothing something. We take what God's given us and we make a container so we can see more of God in it. Yeah, that's good. In, in this book, your creative process that you lay out is threefold. The dream, the sandbox, and the story. Probably one of my biggest takeaways for me personally, as I'm reading the book as a creative that has already helped me a lot is you talk about the sandbox being good for creatives in a sense that it gives us boundaries. So, so why is it good for, in the worship leader context, why is it good for a worship leader to have creative boundaries? Well, we can't create without boundaries, first of all. You have to have a place where you know the size of your canvas. So you hire an artist to paint, and you say, I want you to paint a picture. They say, okay, well, they're going to ask you, well, what's the subject? Is it a landscape? Is it a portrait? What is it? And then you got to ask them, okay, well, what size is this going to be? So you know what paint to buy. Um, And so a lot of times the physics of what we create are very important. Physicality is very important. And just what I described about the miracles being contained, that's what we're doing is we're basically finding the edges of of where we develop the idea. So like in the, the dream discovery, 
how do we get the idea? But then at this point you're talking about, the sandbox is where we develop it. We need space to play. We need space to make a failure. We need space to raise up a new worship team member. And so where are we going to do that? Well, we can't do that in our main service. Well, how are we going to do it then? Let's find a way to do it. So you create spaces or space uh, to develop ideas. And ideas is very broad for, like in our context of worship leaders, for um, people, basically is what we're saying. Uh, so your, your sandbox is your budget. So, okay, you need a certain amount of uh, microphones. How many mics do I need to mic up my team? So a lot of these things are very, very practical and very transferable. The irony is, I tell a story in the book, if you remember, this guy's a Fortune 100 uh, former executive, raises his hands, says, Rich, I thought artists love boundaries or, or hate boundaries, don't want any. And, and he was shocked when I was telling him what, we were, what we're talking about right now. Um, what's really true is that we like to make you think that we don't want any boundaries so we can set, you know, we have unlimited budget, you know, all that, which we know is not true. So when you don't give us a budget, you don't give us a timeline, you don't give us vision, you don't give us direction, the creative person is going to crumble. Hmm. And I call that the blank canvas panic attack. You're looking at a blank canvas, you're panicking because you don't know what's supposed to be painted on it. When I was writing my book, More Than a Worship Leader, you were one of uh, you've been a close friend for a long time, but you were one of those guys in my life that was gracious to read my book. And one of the stories I tell people about you is as I was writing the book, I, I got, I was starting to obsess over it and kept rewriting it. And I remember you were the one that like stepped in lovingly and said, I'm not reading your book anymore. You can, I, you can send me more <laughs> edits if you want but I'm not going to read it anymore. You need to set a date. And you gave me a sandbox in a way like, okay, you know, time's up. Like get, here's a boundary and let's do this thing. You know, I think it's important because sometimes when is something finished? It could never be finished. We could be, right. you know, having a conversation that goes nowhere. It's like dating someone you like and never doing anything to progress. It's just like, eventually that's going to get boring. Um, you have to go somewhere on a journey somewhere. And so creativity does take us further. And so I had to have the same thing with this book, be honest. Mm. I had one of my book mentors who uh, was a consultant, a publisher helped me. And he was saying, you just got to put this out, Rich, come on. <laughs> so just so you know, you're not the only person in the world. We all struggle with, with that as creative people, you know, a song, when is it ready? Yeah. I mean, there's no, per see, there's nothing perfect we're putting out. But are we creating is the point. And, um, and I think that's kind of where, obviously, I'm so glad your book came out because it's helped a lot of people. Otherwise, you know, in other words, it's like someone always would say this, you're not getting much juice for the squeeze anymore. One thing I love about the sandbox analogy that you talked about was you were talking about, a, you know, building a castle in the sandbox. And to me, your analogy with it uh, speaks to the idea of, getting married to a creative idea too quickly. And, you know, the sandbox give us, gives us the luxury of building something and it not being what we want in us. And we, we can not be married to it and go, it's okay. It's just sand. You know, we can, <laughs> we can still sculpt it. And I, I love that, you know, not getting married too quickly to an idea. I think, especially those of us in your ministry context, are you willing to prototype something? Hmm. 
And, you know, in any other endeavor in our society, there's lots of prototypes that go out that no one ever sees. Yeah. <laughs> what we do sometimes is, oh, that'll work. We throw it out there and like everyone's painfully doing a thing. Whoa, some great ideas in that, but it wasn't quite ready. It wasn't baked yet. Um, and that saves us from that process. Tech people use the term sandbox when they try to run software. Hmm. They, I, I think they still call it a sandbox where, they, where, where they're trying to run it. Before it goes online to everybody, there's like a closed server where people are testing out this thing before it goes to the internet uh, and ruins all of our computers. Um, but yeah, it's so important to have prototypes. It's so important to have iterations and to know that you don't have to decide on everything at the moment. Um, like in the case of your book, you had you were already at the elaboration phase, which is the delivery phase. By the time you had it, you weren't. I mean, you wrote your book. Um, but, you know, really, I found out writing a book, there's like five drafts. So the final version, as you know, this, this goes that a person sees at least four, five, six, sometimes more drafts of that book yeah. were created, combed over by multiple people before, if you're doing it correctly, by the way. Right. right. Um, so that it is something of quality. So when I say my book's good, I say, yeah, you're the author. Well, that's because I went through just terrible pain in the sandbox of people crashing and like sand breaking that one down and having to build a new whole chapter or taking a chapter out or uh having the editor just tell me oh brutally this you're losing people on this rich and think gosh all the research i just all those end notes that would have been make me look smarter on the back of the chapter i have to get rid of <laughs> because it's it's just not going to work yeah and i think as creatives we'll find out really quickly if we're open to the development process, when we ask someone their thoughts on our idea, because if they, <laughs> if they don't give us praise and they give us, you know, some criticisms, how we respond to that will tell us if we're married to it or not. Right. Yeah. And I think it's a really good point to bring in this really important idea of the book, the bridge between science and magic is these two ways of thinking the robot and the wizard. You have divergent thinking and convergent thinking. So the person, when you're at a phase where divergent thinking, that's when you're getting your ideas. You're writing the ideas down, and that's important that you're not having those poo-pooed too early. Right. I said poo-poo, sorry. Um, <laughs> and, and so you, it's like, great. Um, to have, so you have the divergent thoughts taking one idea and creating more where convergent thoughts taking all those ideas and then you're starting to whittle them down. Like you're trying to test them and say, well, this one works better than that. You're getting that feedback. So you're actually deciding to have critique at a certain point. And then you might go back and try to get more ideas. After you do that, you go back and forth, you bridge between these two things. And so that's really where I think sometimes we, we have awkward conversations or ones we don't know if it was good or not, because we may not be ready to close ideas yet. Like you said, you have to know if you're in the sandbox, that's what you're doing. You're actually saying, yes, I'm in the sandbox now. So I'm, gonna, I'm stopping the idea generation, discovering the ideas, the dream. Now I'm going to start developing them. And that means I'm going to have to be willing to whittle away stuff. In the worship leader world, I'm probably encompass a lot of the, the uh, stereotypes of worship leaders as far as like job description, I, I do graphic design, I do video editing and I've done social media and I've done website and all those things that design world 
man, that can be really tough uh, designing, you know, for a church, for a pastor, for people who are approving your ideas. And you learn uh, either some really good lessons in humility or you get destroyed by pride. It depends on which way you go, but um, I, I can definitely relate to the cre- the creative process that you mapped out here. It's really helpful. Yeah, and, and the design sense of things, having the sandbox really helps because you could say, here's our design book, for instance, if it's graphic design. We have certain colors and fonts and things. We don't have to really, uh, it gives you more freedom, I guess, to not have so many things to choose from. Thousands of fonts you could choose from. Right. Um, so if you're keeping, here's kind of this general box you're within. So really being creative is, is not being outside the box. It's finding the edges of the box and yeah. being knowing that you have this fence or this, you know, so that's, I think that's kind of what people don't understand. Sometimes I think either I'm completely out of the box with no boundaries or I'm constrained where I have no freedom. And those are really the, the two, what's in between, which is the truth where it should be is you actually have a space to play. Yeah. And time. I loved your idea about Kronos and Keros time where, you know, that chronological time that's, that's unmovable, right? I mean, that's, we have to have that, but within that, you know, space and time, we have the Keros time. We have the time that we can really appreciate and enjoy. Right. Yes, and I kind of wish a lot of lead pastors would understand the idea of chronos time when it comes to what is a 35-minute sermon. Um, is it really 35 minutes? Um, but all that to say is that, yeah, we have these two concepts of time that we inherited from the Greeks, those two words, um, which is great. There are times we get lost, and when you create, being in that mode is helpful. But if we're watching the clock all the time, in other words, if we're only looking to march along with this artificial tick, tick, tock, we're going to really um, limit ourselves from, you know, the, the beauty that a moment could be. And so leading worship, just as an example, you know, we time everything out because we have to, if you have multiple services or everyone has to lime stream pretty much still, um, you know, you, you have a clock that you're going by, but when you plan your service and you're delivering it, the hope is people don't feel the time. They're not like thinking, okay, this is a 30-minute sermon. They're thinking, I'm so grateful to hear that sermon. I wanted more. I'm grateful I got to sing and pray. And that was, you know, they're not thinking of, oh, that song was short or that song was long. Um, And I think that's kind of what that's talking about. Yeah, I always laugh with uh, one of our pastors because he uh, he empathizes with me a little bit on the time thing, you know, because, you know, we're us worship leaders, we got to, you know, keep our time tight. And so anytime a question is brought up about time, I'm like, I'm on a click. It's the same. It's going to be the same exact time every service. So it's always a funny thing we laugh about, but yeah. So to end off here, uh, Rich, man, what a wealth of knowledge and wisdom you you have as far as uh, worship leading. For worship leaders who are listening to this, what kind of advice would you give them in this present day as they lead worship? I would say that I don't believe worship leading or being a worship leader is an official calling. I believe being a creator or an artist, if you would, is our calling. And so I think if you look at it that way, you're not stuck to this one role that I'm a guy with a guitar or keyboard like me um, in front of people leading singing, but I'm a person who serves my church 
by creating for them this moment and giving it to them to have so they could pray and they could relate to God and each other in that, that setting. So really the calling is to be, to be a creator, to be an artist. And so the worship leading part is kind of just, we call it that because we're, that's what we're doing at the moment. But superseding that is, is our identity is not in that. Um, our identity is in serving. And so I think that's, that's kind of my message to that. I think no matter what art you do, we're going to think of it that way. So why don't we do that as worship leaders? Hmm. Yeah, I love that. And it ties into a continuous theme of this podcast. It seems like the idea of identity keeps popping up. And I think that's because uh, that's, a, that's a struggle for all of us, really, right? I mean, we can easily get tied to our title or position and find our identity in that. And that's, that's not a good path. And it, it never has a good ending, right? And some of us are, you know, could end up having the same pain that a, an athlete of the NFL who at 37 retires and he's on TV with his face blown up on everyone's big screens. And all of a sudden he disappears. He got injured or something. And there's a psychological pain that person goes through because our identity is stuck in the fame or the, the catharsis or the dopamine that comes from being in that position. Well, a similar thing can happen to us who are standing in front of people um, and saying and lead them and have that face um, when our identity really is more than that, deeper than that. Um, there's nothing wrong with being in that position, being that person or like that great football player, whoever he is. With, with the thing, the pain that comes though is, is, is when we buy into this is who I am. So we're being, we can't be who we are if we're not doing that anymore. So if I'm not standing in front of the church, you know, singing and leading worship, then who am I? But if I'm creating for the King and experiences for people to meet Jesus, whether that's my own kitchen table or when I make coffee for my son in the, early, in the morning, which we have coffee together, or whatever it is, just I'm creating that space. It doesn't have to be. And I tell you what, I've gone through seasons where I've been in like big churches and all of a sudden I was nowhere and between things and then I'm back there now and whatever. And it, it is very difficult um, to hold. To, it's easy for me to say it. It's difficult to live it. Um, and so I have a lot of empathy for my fellow worship leaders as you go the ups and downs of, of dealing with identity of, of that calling we have. Well, Rich, I appreciate you, man. Appreciate your friendship. And thank you for writing this book. It's definitely helped me and I can't recommend it enough. Uh, we'll definitely put it in the show notes. Go check out this book called Mind Blown. It's, it's going to be one of those books that I'll be pushing on social media and telling people about. I've already been talking about it. So I, I'm just grateful that you wrote it. I've been telling my wife, I'm like, you know, like Rich is somebody who I look to as a mentor, but I'm like proud of him, man. Like I'm, I'm like, he's, <laughs> I'm like reading the book. Going, man, I'm, I'm not proud of you, thank proud you. Of Rick, Rich. So yeah, thanks for, thanks for writing it. And uh, thanks for taking the time to come and have this conversation on the podcast. Definitely want to have you back on sometime. My pleasure. And you got it. Just let me know. All right. Thanks, man. I really appreciate the thought of looking at ourselves as creatives. It's another avenue to become more than a worship leader. The danger of the creative process is pride, 
So with our creativity, it's so important that we value and wear humility. Here's what I said about this in my book. The foundation of humility is ultimately found in the presence and praise of God. Wear humility and you will be an example of praise to God's people, especially offstage. Just as people sense a prideful spirit in a leader, they can also identify when a leader is truly humble. So let's be creative. It can be a hard, painful process, especially when it involves collaboration. But creativity coupled with humility will allow us to lead worship in a beautiful and God-honoring way. Stay tuned for the next episode of the More Than a Worship Leader podcast. I'd greatly appreciate you subscribing and sharing. Thanks for listening.